What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a bunch of stuff to get into, starting first and foremost with the 2023 Grammys. Once again, the Grammys are going to Grammy, and that is not a compliment. Also going to get into some more K-pop with BSS, new single album, uh, Second Wind, as well as M. Night Shyamalan's new thriller film, Knock at the Cabin, and the Chinese sci-fi blockbuster, The Wandering Earth 2, so quite the smorgasbord this week, but let's just get into it. You know, before we start, of course, subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgia pod, linktree.com slash nostalgia pod, Spotify, Apple, wherever you want to get it, it's there. Just make sure you get it. All right, so the 2023 Grammys have happened, and once again, the Grammys are going to Grammy. I really can't believe they messed it up at the top the way they did, but I shouldn't be too shocked because it's the Grammys we're talking about. It's the Recording Academy. Despite, you know, changes to the nominating committees, despite a larger body voting on these awards in, from the music industry, Album of the Year, once again, was completely flubbed. Harry Styles for Harry's House, playing spoiler, upsetting Beyonce in Album of the Year. Not just upsetting Beyonce, also upsetting Adele. Bad Bunny, uh, Kendrick Lamar, you know, I, I, Harry is far from the first choice for the majority of people. And, you know, Beyonce setting, you know, the overall record for Grammy wins uh, this Gram with this Grammys, you know, getting to 32 Grammy wins, despite the fact that once again, the album of the year nomination eludes her. Black woman has still not won album of the year since the 1990s, which is honestly incredibly baffling. And not like Beyonce's Renaissance was some kind of makeup album of the year win at the Grammys. It was not that at all. It was the best album of 2022, a multi-layered, genre-hopping, very impressive body of work that really rewarded revisiting it and really sitting with it. That is not what Harry's House is. And it's, it's a really um, disappointing result once again. You know, if Beyonce lost to Adele, well, it happened before, and Adele's 30 is really good. At least I would have understood it more. If Beyonce had lost to Bad Bunny, again, I would have got it because Bad Bunny had the biggest year of anyone in 2022, and is that would be a really awesome sign of progress at the Grammys with non-English language music being awarded at the biggest stage and showing you the globalism of music and rewarding it as such. But no, that didn't happen either. Kendrick, finally winning album of the year for the first time. You know, again, I, I wouldn't have been too mad about that. Long time coming for Kendrick. Hopefully he gets there still. But no, he lost, uh, she, uh, Beyonce lost to Harry. And uh, Harry also didn't really acquit himself well with the acceptance speech. Not a fan of that, really setting up the, the villain arc, the uh, the bad Harry moving forward. I think a lot of people are going to be really annoyed about this, and as they should be. So I'm uh, very disappointed in this is because it was set up so perfectly for the, you know, the redemption of the Grammys, quote unquote, to finally give Beyonce what she deserves. And again, it's not like this was a makeup award. It was an album really deserving uh, of these accolades. So that is a really huge bummer, you know, and I think apart from that, there is some things to like about what happened in the 2023 Grammys. And I'll just go through a bunch of the, bunch of the wins, a bunch of things that happened, you know, uh, record of the year and song of the year, you know, we were talking about this big grouping and I, in my predictions, I thought, you know, Beyonce versus Adele, Break My Soul versus Easy On Me was probably the fight the whole time. 
but no, <laughs> blanked in both both awards. I got it dead wrong. Record of the year went to Lizzo for about damn time, and song of the year went to Bonnie Raitt for just like that. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, I don't have a big beef with this at all, um, but it's just funny that how really no one was really on this. I think there were some people thinking maybe Lizzo could sneak in, but yeah, it, the fact that it actually happened with both those awards, uh, pretty cool, I guess. Uh, I'm not too mad about that. It is rolling through everything here. Let's see. Uh, so Viola Davis actually is now an EGOT winner, uh, winning a Grammy for audiobook narration in the pre-ceremony. Obviously, Viola Davis, she's a beast, you know. Uh, everyone loves her. Do we feel like winning an EGOT is good if you narrated an audiobook? Like, is that really like a, is that like really like a Grammy people care about? No shots of Eula Davis, but like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of cheating if you ask me, but shout out her. Um, <laughs> Musica Urbana, Bad Bunny won. That's his third time winning that category. Latin Rock slash Alternative, Rosalia won. Really happy to see her. Or her win. I would have loved that category to be on the broadcast to uh, kind of honor Rosalia, one of the most critically acclaimed albums from her in 2022. That would have been cool, but alas, that did not happen. Best rock album went to Ozzy Osbourne, which I don't care about, but the fact that it didn't go to Machine Gun Kelly is pretty funny, and I'm happy about that. Uh, in rap, uh, really chalk like as expected as possible which is good though because this is what we want to happen kendrick wins best rap album that's his third best rap album win only eminem and kanye have more best rap album wins than kendrick best rap song went to kendrick for hard part five best rap performance went to kendrick for hard part five and melodic rap performance went to future drake and thames for wait for you honestly those were the favorites in all those categories uh really no beef with that given what was nominated and obviously kendrick in fact winning rap album uh, over D Drake, or sorry, over DJ Khaled, <laughs> over Jack Harlow. Like it could have been way worse, you know. So that that's good. And I, th I like Kendrick's speech. Honestly, um, he is right to point out that this is a tough record and a personal record for its ugliness. As you know, everyone's talked about nauseam in reviewing the album. So it is cool to see something like that get recognized because it's not as conventional as other work. Um, moving along here, progressive R&B album went to Steve Lacey for Gemini Rights. Honestly, shout out Steve, shout out Steve winning. Um, he was a favorite in the category, but shout out Steve winning. After everything he went through with the TikTok kids on his tour, enjoy the trophy, man. You deserve it. R&B album, uh, straight up R&B album, went to Robert Glasper. A bit surprising because it means Mary J. Blige did not win, and Mary J. Blige was nominated in Album of the Year. You would have thought she would have been a favorite for the genre category. Alas, not the case. In terms of the wins Beyonce did get, she won for traditional R&B performance for Plastic Off the Sofa. She won for Dance Electronic uh, with Break My Soul. And, uh, sorry, Dance Electronic Recording for Break My Soul and Dance Electronic Album for Renaissance. Those are the dubs. Uh, Beyonce did lose one of the smaller categories as well. She lost R&B performance to Mooney Long's Hours and Hours. Beyonce was nominated for Virgo's Groove in that category. So Beyonce went uh, three for four in the down ballot, which would have been totally cool and totally fine if she had won Album of the Year, but she didn't. Again, just a baffling turn of events, man. I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm still shocked about it. Um, let's see, Pop, you know, perhaps this was the sign that something was amiss, and Harry perhaps would be the, the spoiler. Pop vocal album went to Harry Styles, not Adele. Red flag. Pop solo performance went to Adele for Easy On Me, her fourth win in the category. 
and pop duo slash group went to Sam Smith and Kim Petras for Unholy, did not go to Coldplay and BTS. So BTS still uh, blanked at the Grammys thus far. But um, yeah, Adele, quiet night. You know, not what I expected, at least not how we had kind of been positioning this as Beyonce versus Adele part two, you know. Alas, it didn't really come to be that way. It was Harry Styles of all people. Um, you know, other similar stuff. Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift won Best Music Video for All Too Well. Jack Antonoff won Producer of the Year for the second year in a row. Really no beef with either of those. I mean, Jack had a really big year once again. Um, perhaps a bit of a surprise. Global Music went to Masanori Takumi, the ja- Japanese artist, over Burna Boy's Love Demini. Bit of a shock given the stature of Burna Boy, but that's cool. Um, and then Best New Artist actually was a a, a big curveball, I would say. Um, Samara Joy, the Bronx jazz singer, won Best New Artist. You know, not Anita, not Man of Skin, not Wet Leg. You know, it talked about in my predictions that this was not a year with a clear-cut favorite, a clear-cut established star in Best New Artist, the way the past few years have seen that category very easily uh, you know, present itself with people like Dua Lipa and Billie Eilish and Magnus Stallion and Olivia Rodrigo. We didn't have someone of that stature this time around. Um, you know, I thought it would probably be Anita, given her uh, overall presence and global status, but no, it ended up being Samara Joy. That's pretty cool. Who She also won a jazz award as well uh, this ceremony. So, you know, she's really young. That That's that's super cool. And I think it doesn't really speak to any of the other artists at all. It's all on them to, I think, increase their stars from here on out. You know, this was a kind of an odd year for Best New Artist after several years of it being anything but. So this is not, to be clear, this is not like Esperanza Spalding beating Drake and Bieber in 2010. That's not what this is. So shout out to Mary Joy. And I think everyone else who didn't win, who maybe thought they would win, they'll, they'll be just fine. It's no big deal. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you can really have a lot of confidence in the Grammys moving forward. You know, like I talked about the nominations, the fact that you can nominate in rap Glorilla the year she explodes, nominate her song FNF, the same year you also nominate DJ Khaled like a million times. The lack of consistency across nominations and and winning as well is just so evident and it just feels quite broken. And you can't really blame people like The Weeknd and Drake for not wanting to submit their own music. Yes, did Drake just win another Grammy as a featured artist? He did, but that wasn't up to him, you know? I feel really feel for Beyonce, who was he was always a really good sport about this sort of thing and never really um, complains or side eyes or anything like that. You know, she it felt like this was supposed to be the coronation. Not that she necessarily needs the coronation, but like it's kind of the end of like the Beyonce like Grammy story would have been to finally get that album of the year and really earning it at that with off the strength of Renaissance. And they decided to reward a middling album in Harry Styles' uh, third record, Harry's House. It's just really unfortunate. And let me know what you thought about this result. You know, it, it's it, it's really not even like a shot at Harry's Styles. It's just more about like the Recording Academy just completely flubbing it once again. And it really sucks, honestly. So let me know what you thought. What wins were you really happy about? What surprises or snubs really annoyed you? What do you want to see in the future? Obviously, we know the 2024 Grammys will be dominated by Taylor Swift's Midnights so far. So let me know what you thought. And for more Grammys and award shows, as well as more music, 
subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, and now we're moving on to BSS, the 17 subunit K-pop group, male, male trio here, BSS. So let's get into that, their first single album, Second Wind. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of BSS, first single album, Second Wind. BSS, the subunit of 17, the long-running K-pop group, hit K-pop group, fresh off a big 2022, where 17 dropped their fourth album and went on a world tour. They're certainly a signature K-pop group at this stage, you know, signed to the same uh, overall label, Hybe, as BTS, but they've clearly not been stuck in the shadow of their larger label mates, and they really have their own identity, and have been around quite a long time. And I think BSS, it, coming into coming into existence, you know, there was one BSS single in 2018. Now we have this first single album, three more songs, Fighting, Lunch, and 7 p.m. BSS, or, or sorry, 17 really lends itself to the subunit um, approach that we see in K-pop often because 17 is 13 members. It's a very big group, very, very NCT-esque in, in, in that regard. And, you know, on top of that, 17 has a lot of music. They have like a dozen EPs, four records. It's a lot of music and a lot of members. Why not split this up a little bit and make it really easy to connect with a smaller group of your band? And that's kind of what they did with BSS, which stands for Bo Suk Soon, which is a nickname that we have for these three members. The members, of course, Sungwon, DK, and Hoshi uh, for BSS. And yeah, a little, little, little three pack here. You know, uh, I thought it was actually a really like smartly designed single album because there's three different types of songs. You have the first track, you have the first track fighting, which is more that traditional K-pop banger. You have the music video out now. Seventeen in general have quite the reputation as performers, both in terms of dancing as well as uh, live singing and whatnot. So, no surprise that the music video is quite impressive. Uh, I liked fighting quite a bit. It also features a rap feature from uh, somebody new, uh, Lee Youngji, a Korean rapper, not someone from Seventeen. And I thought the flow, the rap flow, and the feature was pretty good. But fighting, just in general, like I think the the, the up temponess of that is a really fun banger. And then right off the bat, song two, lunch, probably my favorite song of the three, just because that's just a really funky, groovy song. You know, you don't get that kind of production all that often in K-pop. And I thought that was a really inspired beat, honestly, in the performance from the three BSS guys. Sounded great. And then to wrap it up, you have 7PM featuring Peter Elias, the uh, European singer. 7PM is a ballad. So to get like three distinct types of songs on your three-song single album, really good. I think it does an awesome job of making that that impression felt. Now, my only question from here would be like is the 17 subunit project like going to continue? This is we had one BSS song in 2018, nothing since. Like I, there's clearly something here with a less is more approach to some of the people in 17. Why not go down this path further? You know, it's hard to be overly invested in a subunit when they're not really releasing a lot of music. You know, this is not the NCT subunits, which are like their fully formed mini groups in their own sense in terms of the catalog they have. We don't have that catalog yet here. So, you know, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that continues. 
you know, I think one thing that perhaps sets up 17 and BSS for success here is that Hybe has done a really good job of kind of differentiating the identities of all the acts they have. And it's really based off the creation of kind of like mini sub-labels and production companies under that Hybe umbrella. Of course, BTS is on Big Hit, but 17, they're in their own little orbit with Pletus Entertainment. And of course, the new, you know, Hybe uh, stars that we got in 2022, New Jeans is on Ador, and La Seraphim is on uh, Source Music. So I think that like is like a really underrated aspect of all of these groups, really, and how they're how they're moving is that they're almost all siloed off and allowed to do their own thing and don't have to worry too much about the other acts that have their own priorities that happen to be on their same label. You don't see that approach across like JYP or SM or YG, for example. So be curious to see if we see the, the fruit of that uh, differentiation in the future. But let me know, what do you think of BSS first single album, Second Wind? Do you want more? I certainly do. It's a short, brief, brief, brief reintroduction to this subunit, so hard to be too invested in it just yet, but I'm sure we'll be hearing from BSS, maybe a new subunit, or just 17 in general coming back because they're so prolific. So let me know what you thought. For more K-pop, for more music, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Wandering Earth 2, the Chinese science fiction blockbuster from Frank Guo. Yeah, so The Wandering Earth 2 is a sequel to one of the biggest movies in recent years. That would be, of course, The Wandering Earth from 2019, a movie that grossed $700 million, most of that in China. This is a Chinese blockbuster film that really was, I think, the first sign of like a fully developed advanced science fiction blockbuster from China. You know, I think that, you know, Chinese blockbusters have really come into their own over the last really five, six years, I would say, as the Chinese, you know, movie industry has really uh modernized and become super advanced um at, at this at this scale. Of course, Chinese cinema and Hong Kong cinema has been a huge aspect of international film for some time. But the blockbuster space has I think really caught up and now you're seeing those high end production values and those huge budgets on the blockbuster front. So I actually saw The Wandering Earth 1 in 2019. I caught it in theaters. Obviously, that was a small theatrical release. You know, Chinese movies, like most foreign films, don't get huge releases in the United States. But I was able to catch that. And I was able to catch The Wandering Earth 2 um, in theaters as well recently, which I was happy to do. And, you know, just check this out because I actually quite enjoyed the first Wandering Earth for what it is. Obviously, if you know anything about it, it's a very, I think, over-the-topped overstuffed sci-fi blockbuster but I, I had a really good time with the first one it's more or less you know a, a play on armageddon you know deep impact you know uh, tr sci-fi tropes people understand in this case we're set in the not so distant future where the sun in our solar system is becoming a red giant and the world has kind of united under this uh united earth government to literally move our earth planet earth out of our solar system and go towards Alpha Centauri. Uh, we're literally going to build like hundreds of ion engines and move the Earth somewhere else so that humanity can survive. And I love how outlandish and over the top that is for a sci-fi premise. It's super fun. You know, it's literally like Armageddon on steroids. It's so cool. 
and 2019's uh, Wandering Earth 1. I liked it. I thought it was, you know, up and down in terms of how many things it's trying to juggle. But the spectacle, I think, is really convincing and, and, and fun. These two movies have a, I think, a really unique, at least to an American viewer, like color saturation. The, the colors, I think, really pop in these movies, which, is, which makes them fun. The CGI, I think, is a bit more up and down. But that's also because there's just so much of it in a movie like this. But it, to me, it wasn't ever distracting. You know, in the first movie, the star of the film is uh, Wu Jing, who plays uh, uh, Liu uh, Piquan. And Wu Jing is a you know massive blockbuster star, one of the biggest actors in China right now. And he's back in Wandering Earth 2 because it turns out Wandering Earth 2 is actually a prequel to the first movie where... It's kind of the same premise, but some other stuff happened before the first one happened, right? So we still got a bunch of big set pieces, a bunch of race against the clocks uh, to save humanity and save the planet. Um, and it's a lot of fun. This time around, of course, we have Andy Lau, the uh, Hong Kong acting legend as well. So it's really packed with two big stars this time around. And I think what I enjoy most about these movies, despite their faults, is that the the themes are actually like I think like quite agreeable. Like it's really a movie that's trying to portray or, or project uh, you know global international cooperation and like public good. And um, I, I do find it you know a bit rousing this uh, you know playing up uh, the need for sacrifice and but just cooperation and collaboration. Like I really enjoy that. Like yes, is it clearly coming from a uh, East uh, anti-Western bent at least a little bit. You know the the Americans, at least the Westerners, are portrayed as um, slight antagonists at times. I don't think that's a big issue. Obviously, you know, over in Hollywood, we portray uh, you know people across the world negatively all the time. It's no big deal. Uh, we have to know how to take it when someone else does it to us. You know, don't. It's not that deep. Um, and actually, I think the best part about it is the American accents in this movie are like really funny because they're like super stereotypical and over the top, which again, probably shouldn't come as a shot the way Hollywood historically has portrayed people from across the globe as well. But I actually like got a huge chuckle, like watching these like really like, like Southern draw, like Texan accents. I thought, I thought it was really fun, uh, honestly. And, you know, I saw this movie uh, in a damn near packed theater in Boston. You know, Boston has a large Asian population, so it should probably shouldn't come as too much of a shock that, um, you know, AMC Boston Common, which is a walking distance from Chinatown, perhaps would uh, be a successful place to show The Wandering Earth too. but it was. And it, it seemed to go over really well. Uh, some of the humor actually got like, real laugh moments uh, as well. There's some funny stuff early on with uh, Wu Jing's character and like a potential love interest, which um, kind of fades away because I think The Wandering Earth 2, to be clear, I don't like it as much as the first one because I think this film is even more overstuffed and has even more going on. And just when you have this this many themes and subplots and sub characters, not all of it can be served as well as it needs to be. So the effectiveness of each element is kind of up and down. Um, but you know, I think early on the space elevator drone attack uh, set piece, really the first big set piece in Wandering Earth Two, that is like some thrilling shit. It looked amazing. That was really fucking cool. And then towards the end, the the race against the clock stuff, the Armageddon on steroids stuff. Also, you know, really great. So, unfortunately, like Act 2, I think is where it gets really, really bogged down in the weeds. But Act 1 and Act 3, I thought were pretty great. And I'd welcome a, a third one. 
you know um you can't really spoil this this franchise i guess like like unsurprisingly the earth um earth's still there the earth's still wandering out towards alpha centauri so we can make a wandering earth three and i say do it you know wandering earth one made 700 million dollars wandering earth two was already over 500 million so far probably get close to six the way it's going over in china obviously one of the big uh, lunar new year movie releases this year which is a huge uh period at the box office in china so you know it doesn't look you know i guess i don't know if there's ever going to be an appetite at, at scale in the west for foreign blockbusters but at least the fact that we get some kind of release and wandering earth one was was on netflix in the united states after it came out the fact that at least the accessibility is is there for people who want to seek it out um is pretty cool you know and the breaking down of barriers as best we can with world cinema um obviously i think helps everyone so uh, more than anything i think these are really good examples i think of these two films of how far blockbuster filmmaking in china has come and i think definitely worth your time if you're into you know outlandish sci-fi movies so have you seen wandering earth 2 do you want to see it leave a comment let me know what you think about it and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to now style to dave here with a review of knock at the cabin new film from m night Shyamalan, the apocalyptic thriller psychological horror film latest film from m night very exciting and i'll start with no spoilers real quick i'll get into spoilers later no spoilers i like the film i think it's a really tight economical thriller builds tension well doesn't wear out its welcome and more than anything else exceptionally well acted especially with dave batista's uh, performance at the center of the film I would definitely recommend it on those grounds. It's not really a scary movie in like the traditional horror sense. I wouldn't really even call it a horror movie, but it's a suspenseful movie. It is a tension-filled movie, and it builds to that tension and holds that tension well. And I would definitely endorse Not at the Cabin. That being said, um, you know, I, I didn't like absolutely love the movie love where it ended up but i think overall it's quite well made once again you have m knight's i think camera technique really on display in this case just a lot of like really well done close-ups of this film i mean we're set in this cabin with this couple played by uh ben aldridge and jonathan groth with their young daughter they're off of this cabin on vacation and they get uh you know, a knock on the cabin. They get uh, an encounter from this group of people led by Dave Bautista's character, Leonard, and they're presented with this uh, uh, difficult task, an impossible choice, as it were, um, in the name of saving the world. And that's really our premise here. So we're set in this one place the whole time, and, and the cast is very self-contained with this small group. And you know, I think the blocking in the cabin with those close-ups on all your actors' faces, really effective and has, I think, a a way of communicating like that that dread that the some of the characters are facing to the audience as you're watching it. So, Knock at the Cabin, pretty good uh, thriller film from M Night. More than anything else, I'm just happy to see this movie, you know, find some success. It had like a twenty-ish million dollar worldwide uh, opening weekend, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then you have to remember that. 
Knock of the Cabin only cost $20 million before marketing. So M. Night, once again, is making movies at an economical, uh, cost-effective manner without the movie coming across as cheap in any way. And I think that's really cool because, once again, Shyamalan is co-financing a lot of his films the past few years. So I'm all for, you know, an original voice in Hollywood finding his way, you know, outside the traditional studio system, or at least outside the traditional way of working with studios. So, uh, you know, hats off to M night. And if he just keeps making like thrillers like this, you know, tight little movies like this, you know, with like some kind of like high concept premise and just, you know, throwing you for a loop for 90 minutes, like, why not? Like, I think, He's he's kind of really really killing it and really kind of finding a groove the past few years and obviously there'll be ups and downs with that approach but I think just as someone who's committed to making original stuff and also has like the technique as a director to back it up you know I think it's uh, hard not to root for M Night. All right, so now I'm gonna get into spoilers for Knock at the Cabin. So you know spoilers from here on out. Let me know what you thought of the movie once you or just come back. You know let me know what you think once you've seen it. So yeah. I think what's really cool about Knock at the Cabin, really my, my favorite thing about it, is Dave Bautista as Leonard. And man, Dave Bautista is doing such interesting work, such inspired work. You know, the past, I don't know, what, five plus years, he's working with talented people like a Ryan Johnson, like a Denny Villeneuve, for example. Uh, now an M. Night, you know, he's, t- he's seeking out talented people and he's playing like real characters, you know, Dave Bautista is running laps around Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you know, it's so refreshing to see someone really give themselves into a character, given obviously the humble wrestling beginnings that Bautista has. But honestly, his central performance as Leonard is the key to not have the cabin working as well as it does. He really communicates a a kindness, uh, I think in, in, in an effective manner, while still being firm in uh, what he's presenting, you know, this family with what they have to do. And, you know, I think really, really from the opening start, opening scene where you meet Leonard, where uh, Batista encounters uh, Aldridge and Groff's daughter's character, Wen, played by Kristen uh, Key. When Leonard meets Wen, like and you learn later that he's a he's a teacher this character man like i thought like the way like they communicated was so felt so real felt so felt so genuine you know and then really quickly we get into that presentation of of the impossible choice where we meet you know the rest of leonard's crew played by nikki amuka bird abby quinn and of course rupert grint of harry potter fame and on its face, it seems really simple, right? Like, you have to kill... They're told that they have to kill one of them. Otherwise, the apocalypse will fall upon Earth and everyone will eventually die. And what I really like about Knock at the Cabin is that you are quickly thinking about whether this is real or not. You know? And the doubt that Ben Aldridge, in particular, really... Uh, his character Andrew, the doubt that Andrew really brings in terms of this not believing what's being presented by these people, accusing them of being death cult cultists or, or trying to um, expose them or, or harm them in some way because they're a gay couple, whatever it might be. That doubt, I think, is communicated well to the audience, and you're not really sure what's going on either as you watch this group 
slowly kill themselves one by one as Andrew and Jonathan Gross character Eric, as Andrew and Eric refuse to comply with their demands. You know, I think it's really harrowing. And the movie makes, I think, a really pointed choice of not really showing you the deaths of Leonard's crew. You know, the camera pointedly really cuts away at the uh, moment, you know, of truth each time. But it still feels really harrowing and really heavy, you know? And it's like, you don't even know if you like these people, but they are, like, being nice about this really difficult situation they are presenting this family with. And I was just kind of along for that ride. And then you eventually learn that yeah, the apocalypse is really happening. And it's communicated, um, I think, effectively via all the times they turn on the TV and they see what's happening with the news. And like it gets kind of undeniable that this is real and they need to find a way to comply. Um, in the process, you get a classic M. Night Shyamalan cameo in the air fryer commercial. I thought it was really fun, really, really, uh, really landed, you know, classic uh, Rick Dolan pointing at the uh, TV meme right there but that that made me chuckle yeah though like man like as we're just watching everyone die you know obviously R- rupert grint being the first one to die i was like ah oh, man i don't see rupert grint too much i would have loved him to stick around a little longer but um man i i think if i have like a main criticism of knock at the cabin it's just that you kind of like see see how it's going to resolve itself before it happens you know that andrew is steadfast in his disbelief that this is real and you can kind of tell early on that Eric is going to be the one to turn things around and realize what has to be done. Like, you, you kind of feel that, you know? And Knock of the Cabin doesn't really have, like, a twist. You know, it doesn't have the, quote, Shyamalan twist that people expect. And not that I needed to have a twist, obviously. I don't think it's fair to M. Night necessarily as a filmmaker to have to live up to that reputation. But it's more so that, not that it doesn't have a twist, but more so, like, there's not, like, actually, like, any extra subtext or takeaway by the end, it's more really just a tight, suspenseful thriller movie that ends itself. It's based off a novel. I think that's probably part of it. But you know, when it ends, I think you're just kind of like, oh, "Wow, that was a that was a ride," and it was a pretty good one. But there's not like any extra like meaning or takeaway per se. I guess my my takeaway really is just the meta sense of Dave Bautista is like really really smashed it as Leonard. I really loved him. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's really it. You know, another pretty tight thriller pretty fun movie you know not too scary but still pretty full of suspense and dread shout out m night uh what'd you think of knock at the cabin let me know leave a comment did you like this more than old from uh 2021 m night Shyamalan's previous film i believe he has another movie uh that he's working on now i forget the title but uh let me know what you thought and for more movies subscribe and i'll see you next time yeah.